Good morning, Sarai. How are you doing today? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. And looking forward to this episode. So we've had two episodes officially where we've talked about Bill Bartell, um, Pat Fear. And on the, the first one, we got together with Dave Markey, Ronnie Barnett, um, Jennifer and Jordan Schwartz. And that was a great conversation. Yeah. And during that conversation, they recommended that we speak with Howie Pyro and Bruce Duff. So our second episode focusing on Bill, we did get a hold of Howie Pyro and uh, he was kind enough to bring in Jeff McDonald. And that was a great conversation too. And today we're talking uh, with a small panel with Bruce Duff and Michael Quercio about Bill Bartell. Yeah. So it should be interesting because I know we've had some pre-discussions with Michael and he shared some great stories with us offline. So we wanted to make sure we get them um, recorded with some of these stories because some of these were amazing stories. Yes. So I say, uh, Let's um, let Bruce and Michael join the conversation. Let's get it on. Hi, this is Soraya. And this is Jeff. Our podcast is called Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme. A podcast where the two of us play music that we like and share anecdotes and background about the tunes. We hope you'll join our conversation. And without further ado, agarubiar. Let's get groovy. 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 Here we go. Um, Can you see me? No, we no, see they, the, the technical see difficulties. The technical difficulties. All right. Should be cut. There we hey. go. There we go. How are you doing, Bruce? I'm all right. How are you guys? We're doing right. great. Look at that collection behind you. Oh, yeah. Uh, we try not to show the, there's an area right over there where uh, my wife has a workstation. She has like a uh, Etsy store that's fairly ah. successful. So what used to be a dining room table is a pile of shipping items. So nice, nice. It makes look a little Adam. Well, it looks a little Adam's family, no matter where you are in here. So it doesn't matter. Nice. And do we have Michael? I don't think so. Wait, there he is. Yeah, he's coming up. Oh, there's Michael. Is it all happening? Hi, Mike. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi there. All right. Oh. <laughs> well, we're so glad to have you both on. We've had a couple discussions about Bill Bartell in the past, and you, both of your names came up of people that we need to talk to um, if we want to learn more about Bill Bartell. And for our listeners, um, of course, you'll know Michael because Michael's been on the show before. Michael of Salvation Army, The Three O'Clock, Jupiter Effect, Permanent Green Light, Imperial Butt Wizards. Uh, we've talked with Michael about game theory and some of the production that he's done, but um, we wanted to welcome you back, Michael. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me? You can hear me? We can hear you. Okay. And you look fabulous, okay. too. Oh, thank you, Dave. But new to our show is Bruce Duff, and Bruce has been on uh, tons of projects. Um, just reading through the Discogs, um, Bruce is a musician, a bass player, producer, journalist, publicist, A&R director, product manager, artist manager, having written for LA Weekly, Billboard, bass player, Cream, Guitar World, all kinds of stuff. And um, he's famous. I mean, I know who Bruce Duff is just yeah. by reputation alone. Yeah. He's like the real. Who does it? He's not like the usual like like crummy 
guest like me. He's like real. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Bruce has played with a number of bands. Um, some that interest me are 45 Grave, Twisted Roots, which I would love to talk more about someday. And currently with Streetwalking Cheetahs, right? And speaking of Streetwalking yeah. Cheetahs, um, uh, Bruce helped produce a video, um, Flatten the Curve, which is really fun and uh, brought in uh, some of the people that have been on our show, Stephen McDonald, uh, Melanie from the Pandoras. So if you haven't seen it, go watch uh, Flatten the Curve FTC, um, a video about um, what we're dealing with with the pandemic. Very cool. So Bruce, we wanted to welcome. Were you in the 45 grave, like 81, era 82? No, I was was in the band like 83. I think I want to say, I'm, it was either 82 going into 83 or 83 going into 84. I was only for six months, uh, basically. I opened for at the Whiskey. It was a Salvation Army on 45 Graves, so I'm not sure. If- uh, I would not do that. that. I think that was before me. Okay. Very cool. So, Bruce, welcome to our show. Anna, you were saying about the video? Oh, just that, you know, it was like one of the first things I did when we all were in lockdown and like we were rushing to get it out, which we're trying to get it out in March. We finally got it out in April and we thought, wow, we just got out in the nick of time. And, wow. you know, it's November and we're still in the same boat. So it's just kind of a joke. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that's a fun video. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So we wanted to ask you guys, Bill Bartell, how, could you guys tell us how you first met Bill? I think we should start with Bruce because I think you live or you, you are from my area in the Inland Empire. I'm from Temecula and I think you're from Riverside ah. County. Is that right? Riverside County? Yeah. So how did you meet Bill originally? I think you're probably the person that has known him the longest that we've talked to. Uh, yeah, that's what I've heard. Well, Bill, uh, Bill lived in what was called Sunny Mead. It's not called that anymore. Now it's the uh, Moreno Valley. But back then, at the end of the 70s, going into the 80s, it was, uh, you know, kind of like the valley was in the, I guess, the 50s or something. It was still pretty, pretty spread out, a lot of ranches. It wasn't like track homes and miles and miles of like, uh, like it is now, like a valley, uh, urban area. A little more spread out, so it was a little bit more we kind of looked at it as the sticks, although, you know, the Inland Empire back then was pretty much the sticks anyway. So at the time, I worked at a guitar store teaching guitar and bass in Arlington. And uh, a fellow I knew uh, started this rock magazine in Riverside. He had been, he was just a couple of years older than me, but he uh, had this bilingual Spanish uh, American free magazine that was supported by advertisement that came out in the two Riverside barrios. And these two barrios were always button heads and gang fights and all this stuff. And he was like, you know, we're all Chicanos, let's get along. And so that was sort of the concept of his magazine. And it was a hit. Well, he was also like a guitar player and a music freak. He came into my store and he goes, hey man, my magazine's a big success. I'm gonna start a rock magazine. Will you edit it? And I mean, I knew the guy and I just kind of looked at him and went, sure. I didn't know anything about how magazines were made. I'd never written for one, never took journalism or anything, but we did it and it sort of took off locally. So one day I'm at the store and uh, I get a call from this kid. It's Bill Bartell and he says, hey man, I dig your magazine. I want to write for it. How do I do that? I go, send me something. 
I could use a record review. I think I signed him a Ramones review. He sent it in. It was great. And uh, uh, this was kind of near the end. We did five, six magazines, and then uh, the thing sort of fell apart. The guy tried to sell it to another publisher and a bunch of boring stuff we won't get into. But Bill actually wrote for the very last magazine we did, which was the sixth one. I have it here. Oh. Uh, this cover story, Cheap Trick, he wrote. And then down here is a little tag, Roxy Filming. That was uh, a Devo shoot. And he wrote that. And then his Ramones review is in here. Something uh, kind of funny I, I found when I was looking in this last night. Uh, let's see if I can find it real quick. So we had a classified section, free for bands and stuff. The first ad reads, young original band looking for new drummer. Our market is larger than Riverside area, and we're looking to make it, to make it. No top 40, country or funk. If interested and qualified, call Bill or Marty. So th that was those guys oh, wow. uh, getting their first band together. So, yeah, so that would have been the end of 78, and that's how I got to know Bill. Wow. Wow. That, so that's been a while. So, Michael, how did you first meet Bill or learn about Bill? Do you know remember? I met Bill originally through uh, Jeff and Steve from Red Cross. Oh, okay. Who uh, I was hanging out with. They're from the same area as me here up in North Bay. And, and um, he was like a friend of theirs. And he just kind of, trying to think, became like, you know, I started being a friend of mine. And uh, he would turn me on to music and things. Uh, I remember he he's the one that turned me on to Os Matantes. Oh, yes. And uh, he pretty much was the only person in the country that knew who they were. And he pretty much... Uh, single-handedly, I think, uh, opened them up to the American psyche because he just grew up apparently where uh, Bruce was saying, uh, and apparently he had Brazilian neighbors who had their first record. I think his sister had gone to Brazil on some sort of trip and brought the record home and said, you'll like this. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. So, yeah, he had, I was, Anybody that knew Bill, one of the first things he talked about was Os Matantes. It was just like a crusade from when he was very young. Yes, he gave, he gave me a cassette. And uh, and then we all went on a trip to Las Vegas with uh, the, it was this huge, we all got on a plane to go see the bangs, the bangles and the go-go's at Caesar's Palace. And this would have been like 84, 84. Um, this is pre-Prince, this is when the Bengals' first Columbia album. This, this is before the Prince thing. So they got a gig opening for the Go-Go's. And so we all thought that'd be fun. Why don't we all go and, and, and go see this? And uh, so we all got on a plane. It was just all of the Red Cross guys and me and the other guy from 3 o'clock. He was dating uh, Susanna Hoffs and was the, the, uh, she was, you know, we all went to go and we were just all on that. And Bill Bartell was part of this entourage. And, uh, and we hung out at Caesar's Palace. We, showed, we all slept on the floor of, I think, the guys in Red Cross room or, or whatever. We all, I remember, I think Bill and I and Sue, Bill always just seemed to be able, he was that guy that just seemed to be able to be at the right place at the right time. Like, like we're all going to have dinner. So it's Bill Bartell and me 
And I think Jeff and Susanna Hoffs and, and uh, then who shows up? We're all at the table going to have dinner in this little restaurant in Caesar's Palace. And who walks by but Belinda Carlisle and the guy from the Calvin Klein ad. Uh, Calvin oh. Klein ad was that big, the muscular guy that's lying on a rock in his underwear. <laughs> right. Yeah. The picture was all over the 80s, you know. So it's him. So they just say hi, then they sit down and they, they, and they have dinner with us and they're all coked out. And uh, I don't remember Bill Bartell ever doing any drugs at all. I don't think he was into drugs. I don't even think I ever saw him drink. Wow. It's he was sad. into Diet Coke. Diet Coke, okay. No, so I mean, I, I don't mean, mean that was the Go ahead. He took Diet Coke at level so other people took heroin. <laughs> But it's just no, I'm not music. trying to be funny. That killed him. Oh wow! That's why he had diabetes and stuff. That, yeah, it uh, from Diet he, Coke. I didn't realize because I was actually on the road with him for a week in Spain, and he would drink like two of those, you know, whatever they are, meter gallon uh, plastic bottles of Diet Coke on a van ride, and we were to, and by the end of it, he'd be like a fly buzzing around in this van. Everyone was like trying to calm him down, like. It was crazy. I, it, when you saw it up close, it was, it was kind of alarming. So, wow. Wow. So like the two liter I, bottles. But right? that, that, that was his choice. Caffeine. But he looked down on all other drug use and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. I remember he did look down on alcohol and, and drug use. And, uh, and he was just wild and fun. And I could go on. I know. Why don't let's Jeffrey take the conversation? To where you wanted to go, Jeff? I don't. So we were. That's how I met him. Yeah. So we were very curious if if you guys remember stories that kind of describe who Bill was to you guys. So Bruce, you knew Bill early. Well, um, I, I would say like Bill uh, was pretty. A couple of things about him. He was pretty clear on what he liked and what he wanted to pursue. And when when Michael's talking about how he sort of was in the right place at the right time. Yes, that's true. And I think Bill deliberately placed himself in those places. He knew what he <laughs> dug and he knew who he wanted to get to know and he would just exert, insert himself into those lives. Just like, I don't know how he found out where I worked, but he found me and got on, on this magazine and he just kind of made things happen. Uh, I have here, you might not know this, Metal Massacre, which one is this, four? Oh, yes. No, three. This was a series of records, records made. Uh, my own little gestures of destiny was on number five. That's how we got going. But this is the third one, and it features test pattern. That's Bill's first band, and they were, they, they, you know, he's associated with punk rock, but Test Pattern were trying to be Blue Oyster Cult. He loved Blue Oyster Cult. 
And yes, uh, yes, he did, yes. So Test Pattern, Bite the Knife, Bill Bartell credited with lead vocals, lead guitar, and lawnmower, which is probably true. Marty was on it uh, playing lead. He hadn't switched to bass yet. And Victor and Dean, uh, Victor had a studio and was recording Bill all the way up to the end. Some tapes got lost. I was on some stuff that was this big tater tots production with like 20 people on it doing, these, uh, doing covers of Queen and The Rattles. I can't make this stuff up. And somehow the tapes got screwed up. They never came out. It was a big controversy. I don't know what happened, but one of the first things I dealt with Bill musically was he started his own label, the infamous Gas the Tanker Records. This is a 45 box set that I have. Got oh. great stuff. Uh, anyways, so because of when, when I taught guitar in Riverside, Bill knew about that. You know, a lot of what you would do, I, I taught Gary Lyons, who ended up in the Blackhearts. He was a Riverside kid, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Wow. So anyways, a lot of times what you do, kids, this was the 70s, kids would walk in with their Ted Nugent or Aerosmith records and show me how to do this. So I learned how to just play things right off the, you know, from a record pretty quick and show somebody how to do it in a half hour. So with that in mind, Bill calls me one day and he goes, uh, Red Cross or, or recording a covers record, could you play the guitar solo to Deuce by Kiss? I go, I guess so. He goes, okay, be there at five. I go, five? I'm at work, man. I was, so I was literally at work that day. I went home for lunch and I happened to have the live record, put it on. I go, okay, I think I get the basic gist of it, but I didn't have time to like sit down and learn it note for note, which, which I think is what they thought I was going to do. So I show up with a, my roommate's Les Paul and a Stratocaster. Gaze the X is producing the thing. It was, at, um, it was at Kitchen Sink, which a lot of people recorded it. It was Kim Fowley's home base. And I'd been there before. So I was comfortable with the place. I walked in, the whole studio, not, it was just Gaza, Bill, and the two brothers was in chaos. And I walked in with my guitar and said, hey, I'm here to play. Uh, here, I got my guitars, and Gay's like, no, no, put those down. Play this. And he handed me Jeff's um, BC Rich. They had just got a BC Rich endorsement, of all things. Horrible guitar. Strings are like this far off the neck. I could barely play it, but they had it all dialed in. You know, this is what they wanted. And Gay's is all frantic. The entire time I was there, I played, well, I played the two solos. I go, cool, man. Getting ready to get up, and Gay's is like, what are you doing? I go, I did. Played the two solos. He goes, there's a third one. I go, there's a third one. Who puts three solos in a four-minute song? I, I never even got that far in the record. Anyway, so I did it. I just made some shit up off the top of my head. was happy i heard that the band hated it because it wasn't note for note what kiss did but anyways the entire time i'm there 
I'm in the control room playing along with Geza. The two brothers are out in the studio, and I swear this is true. They were like head to head, this close, screaming at each other the entire time I was there. I have no idea what about, but just furiously angry. All the same time, Bill is out in the studio where there's a two track. Now we're on a 16 track, I suppose it was, multi-track. So working with the two tracks down the road a piece, it's not ready to mix. So I kept thinking, what, what is Bill doing? So he's fiddling around with tape and everything in the studio while the brothers are arguing and I'm playing guitar. I leave, the record comes out and then I get this cassette from Bill and it's called the Red Cross Tapes. So what Bill had been doing is he was taping the brothers arguing and made sort of like a Trogs tape of it and then, and then made cassettes of it and gave it to all his friends. Oh my God. And I, I, at his memorial, I looked, I tore my place apart looking for it. I could not find it, but it is a true story. He made tapes of the brothers art. And they, man, when they got into it, they're not like this anymore, but they could argue. Those guys could go. <laughs> that is hilarious. I mean, that's that's how Bill's mind worked. You know, he saw this like a perfect idea for a prank and just got some tape and spooled it up and set up them. Nobody even noticed what he was doing. Gaza didn't pick up on it. It's great. That's hilarious. So, Michael, you were a part of Tater Tots as well. Did you have any kind of experiences during your recording of the Tater Tots? Yes, be, before the Tater Tots, big. I'm trying to think of what the show was. It was my, really my one of my first productions with Bill. Bill had put on some huge production at a theater. I forget what it was, but the thing was we were all going to do Tomorrow Never Knows. I think it was some, I forget what it was, but um, I ended up playing guitar with Bill doing Tomorrow Never Knows and singing it. And then I think I also got up and did Beth. Uh, and Bill had all the tapes ready. It was in front of this big audience, these two Kiss, uh, the Beatles song and the Kiss song. I forget what the deal for the show was, but it was at this big theater. And that's where I first met the Imperial Butt Wizard people because they were kind of, uh, Paul Kay was part of this extravaganza too. Paul Kay was in charge because this big production of me singing Tomorrow Never Knows also had Bill on guitar and then a big dancers and all the dancers were choreographed by Paul Kay from the Butt Wizards. And that's how I, I, I met Paul Kay. And then after that, um, Bill invited me to come and play on um, the Tater Tot, some recordings. Uh, and uh, I, I became a Tater Tot, <laughs> you know, but it was all different. You weren't in the studio at the same time. I would drive all the way out to Riverside and there, he had a studio out there where I would you know, lay down bass and vocals. I remember one time Gwen Khan, the original Pandora, Gwen Khan came out with me. He was an old dear friend. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I. But when the trees bow down their heads, the During all this, Bill had a function. Bill would get, apparently at this time at the um, 
hotel in town LA, they would have Beetle Fest. You know the Beetle Fest? Yeah, that was Beetle Pasadena, convention. I want to say, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, Pasadena now, Convention. The Center, first time was not, the first time they performed was not, maybe Bruce was part of this band the first time they did it. No. I remember the event. But the first time Bill got, he got a group of people to perform at this fest um, with uh, these, like, I, I know he got uh, Christy McNichols' brother to be in on the, on the band, and he got uh, another girl that was an old friend uh, uh, who had come out from New York to live in LA, and he got her to dress up in a meat bikini. No, 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 he got her to be, this is, no, no, this is, no, the first time with Jennifer Schwartz to be Yoko. They did Don't Worry Kyoko at the Beatle Fest, yeah. which was Bill and Jimmy McNichol and Jennifer Schwartz and the McDonalders. And it would cause such a riot because they were crazy and, and she was dressed in a Yoko mask and she was throwing like grapefruits at the audience. And, and it just, it caused a riot. And it was like, what, you can't do this? No, Yoko's bad, Yoko's bad. And, and so it was, Bill recorded the entire thing, including the audience coming up and wanting to beat them up afterwards. And, and, and it came out on a 45 that Bill put out on Gasatanka, Live Hate at Beetlefest, yeah. which I still have in my collection. And it's just performance and then the audience coming up and, and some guy trying to punch him. And it was called Live Hate at Beetlefest because it was hate. So then the next year, he managed under a different name to get on the bill again at the usually these bills were just these like really bad beetle cover bands you know dressed up you know in the skinny tie and 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 then we, so this next year i got involved and i played bass and they cut us off in the middle because they realized it was bill again what? you know they remembered him from the chaos that he had caused the year before so we got cut off i don't even know if we were able to start playing before they realized who it was I was not aware of the, that, that that there was a second performance. Yeah, yeah, and that was that was at that was all again at the at the at that hotel in downtown LA at at, at the Beetle Fest. And I remember I think the, the the promoter was trying to throw us out, picking I think they tried to pick us up by the collar and throw us out. It was a show being you know borderline performance art. Yeah, exactly. Well. That was that was Bill. You know, and I uh, did some. I, I played something with him. I'd already lived here, but the show was in Riverside, I think someplace on Main Street. And uh, it was some, somehow Don Bowles related, uh, but it wasn't 45 Grave. I think, I think they were opening for Vox Pop. And uh, Bill had put this band together. I don't remember what he called it. Uh, he might've called it Kawanga because he loved Bill. He loved uh, Don and... Uh, Paul from 45 Grave and they lived in this weird place on Coanga with the, uh, the Zolar X guys. So I think that's what it was called. Anyways, I was playing drums, which I can just barely play now, but much less then. And uh, it was, you know, typical covers that Bill liked. I remember this huge long version of uh, Astronomy Domine by Pink Floyd, it was stuff like that. But the funny thing was he had all the electronic stuff for guitars, whatever, all the amps, were plugged into this power strip that in turn was plugged into this clock that he hung on the wall and set for 45 minutes. We, and these songs were all long and jammy. And I, so it must've been a box pop. So that would have been sort of the same idea. And when it hit 45 minutes, the band shut off. 
That was the show. And I was like, that was kind of the funny. And I'm still drumming, you know? And it's like, okay, that was pretty funny. So, and then, uh, and that's, I think that's when I met Don and he said, you are the absolute worst drummer I've ever met. And I mean that as a compliment. I'm like, all right, all right, I'll take it as I get it. Coming from one drummer to somebody's yeah. friend. Yeah, wow. Cool. <laughs> so I, I have a, just a curiosity here for you, Michael and you, Bruce. How, how did Bill convince people to come along on this journey, like the Beatle Fest? Or, you know, uh, did he tell you guys, hey, uh, the band's going to shut off after 45 minutes. We're going to play this long jam. I mean, how did he get people to follow him on this? Uh, well, he was very persuasive. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. He just had this, uh, it was just, he just had a way of, making you excited about what he was excited about. Uh, he, in his, yeah, very persuasive. He, he would not, the guy would not take no for an answer. <laughs> Pretty much it. So was it his energy or his passion that, that people found interesting? It started getting more and more interesting for me as I started getting to know him and then finding out all these mysteries about him because he had several lives. Uh, he, he, as I don't know, you discussed before, uh, he, and so he just was, became, he became, I never understood why, like he was started the band White Flag to kind of be a parody of, everything was kind of a parody of something. And I found him to be a very a talented guitar player, just scoping him out as, he would play stuff for me that he wrote. He would play guitar. And I always thought, but everything about him had to be like he was just a parody of something that was famous or something that was well known. And I always didn't understand, well, don't you just be Bill? You know, why does everything have to be kind of this, you know? And he, but he would put a wall up when I, because I would get into these discussions with him. With me, he would put this wall up. Nope, sorry, I can't tell you these. I just do what I do, and and uh, I I never knew he was a policeman. I I mean I yeah, mean how the hell he did he find time right. to fucking become a policeman? <laughs> you know I mean where the fuck did that come from? You know I mean the guy was just like whoa you know you just think he's this rock uh, you know sycophant you know but no he's like a motorcycle officer. <laughs> it's like. It's like, it's like, what? Maybe Bruce would know more of these, this mystery. You know, that way, he, he, he definitely kept that separate. There, there were, like you said, there were different sides of him. He kept, uh, he kept them separated out. And when he was dealing with music, you'd talk about music and he was kind of a musicologist. Like when you see things like uh, the white flag re record, that's a replica of surrealistic pillow. He would do those kind of, you know, art things all the time. Uh, but then to take it on his own spin, he, he would never just cover something. Or if he did cover something, he would make it so identical as, and that would be sort of hookup. But I forget what, I think it was something really insane, like uh, Strawberry Fields or something. And he did it at one of his studios in Riverside and just kept putting stuff together on, I believe it was on a Ford. It was on, it wasn't on like some elaborate equipment. It was sort of like a Ford track or something like that. He goes, hey, check this out. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to. 
get the tapes because I made them and I'm like uh, okay and, you know so he would do things that were seemingly impossible as well so I mean he was into it but you know he had his secret lives and he kept that stuff away from you know if, if I'm sure his his policeman friend must must have respected him because I remember when he passed away his house uh however this happened neighbors and people keep an eye on it or whatever I mean, like within a week or two after he died, somebody broke into his house and stole guitars and stuff. And his cop brothers got that settled out really fast. So, I mean, and that was, those are all people none of us knew. I think the link between all of that, if I had to guess, was his older brother who was an attorney and Bill used to uh, uh, work for his brother uh, in later years, uh, just kind of, watching people like an investigative guy oh wow sit in a car and stake people out for his brother so i think i think that was the connection to the law enforcement world i think wow yeah so you guys mentioned the fact that uh bill was a police officer and when we spoke to jeff mcdonald he suggested that we reach out to the beaumont police department which we did and i was able to get in touch with a captain carl who knew of bill but didn't know him personally and he was telling me stories that, oh yeah, Bill used to be a punk rocker. Uh, Bill was a rodeo rider, stuff that we already knew, but we wanted to find out more about how Bill was as a police officer. So Captain Carl uh, contacted this Facebook group that they have, which is the Beaumont Police Department old timers group, because none of the people that are on the force now worked with Bill. And it turned out that this Lieutenant um, Van Buren used to work with Bill but um, he didn't have a whole lot to share with us. So we were, we were hoping to get bring him on too. But Michael, you shared a story with us that confirmed that he was a police officer where you ran into a fellow officer in a restaurant? It was still a mystery at this time. The, uh, I, I was playing with in the Imperial Butt Wizards with Paul Kay and, and Bill was a, Bill was a, some, Bill was a bit of conversation because he would, he was such a mystery and nobody, we wanted all these, there were so many rumors about him, like the rodeo rider and the, but the policeman thing was a mystery. And I was like, no, he's not a policeman. I mean, like, how could he be a police? I mean, all us rock people were just rock, you know, knowing somebody that had that many, you know, when did he have, you know, when did he become a policeman? You know, anyway, so we were, I was out, I was out, um, um, on a like an antique we were we were like junk collectors rocker collectors antique collectors paul and i and we were out on we were out in beaumont 
on like gonna, gonna go visit some antique stores out there or something. And we're at like a Denny's or something like that having lunch. And there is a motorcycle cop having lunch a few tables away from us. And of course, Paul was such an instigator, Paul Kay. And he's like, Michael, go up to that guy and, and ask him if he knows Bill Bartell. So I'm like, okay. So I acted like I was going to the restroom. And when I walked back, I saw the officer and I, so I stopped. I said, excuse me, officer. I'm sorry to interrupt your lunch. And he looks up at me and I'm like, I've got a friend on your force. I just wondering uh, if, uh, if you knew him, uh, his name is Bill Bartell. And right away he smiled and he goes, yeah, I know Bill. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if he's working today, but, but yeah, yeah, I know Bill. And I'm like, oh, oh, well, just please tell him I, Michael said hi. And I walk back to the table, I'm like, you're not gonna believe this, he knows Bill. So somehow, oh, I don't know my. if right away when we got home, Paul called the McDonald brothers or did the word got out, but Bill Bartell, I get a frantic phone call from Bill Bartell like the next day or something. What did you do? What did you do? Who did you talk to? I'm like, I'm sorry, Bill, we saw a cop having, we were in Beaumont and a cop was having lunch and we asked him if he knew. How did he know it was you? Um, I think the McDonald brothers called Bill and said, hey, Michael Corsio went up to a cop in Beaumont and asked if he knew you. So Bill, uh, Bill called me frantic and angry, frankly. And I said, Bill, no, I just asked him. I didn't, I didn't say anything. You know, the world, worlds collided that weren't supposed to collide. And I said, no, no, I just, it was a two second conversation. I, all I did was ask if you knew him. I didn't say how I knew you. I just said I was a friend. You know, the whole conversation didn't take two seconds, you know, and, and then I can't remember what else Bill said, but yeah, Bill was kind of, Bill was angry. So the cat was out of the bag that Bill was a cop. And apparently I outed him, which I don't <laughs> think Bill ever forgave me for really. You outed him as a cop. I outed him as a cop, which I actually thought I was going to go up to this cop and this cop was going to say, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, because I thought, I thought it was, the rumor was preposterous. And no, it was true. Uh, I knew that Bill had a fetish about uniforms. Like he collected, you. he had a complete Mountie uniform. A Canadian I think Mountie. Canadian Mountie. He had all the, I don't know how, if I had gone to his house or why, my memory's all foggy, but I had seen this collection of like, a, he had like the Navy, white Navy uniform in his closet. He had this whole, and they were all in like plastic, like from the, uh, from the um, dry cleaner or whatever, but he had all this collection of uniforms. And, uh, and so I just thought, maybe I just thought that the police thing was just a, cause you would see pictures of him he would do like, like there were already pictures of him in the cop uniform that he would pose with, you know, I thought, oh, it was a joke. It was just from this collection, but apparently the cop one was real. Wow. And then he just, but, but he was always a fan of mine. And then when I got Permanent Green Light together, we did a demo and he heard, he finally, he heard the demo and he got us the contract with a Gassetank uh, Dutchies, Dutchies India you know, and he put all that together and he was really supportive and got us our album and got us an insanely good contract where we got our rights back in five years. And, and he was just really, when he got behind you and he liked you, man, he was your bulldog. We all, he got us a, did, we went and played New York and did a convention there. I think it was the 
whatever that music convention and he he flew out with us and got us the you know and the hotel and the plane and he was in the guy do anything he was wow wow it sounds like if if there was something that that he wanted to promote or or um pass out to the to people or get behind he was very very uh passionate right and uh he seemed to just be able to do I, I, later as i as i put it all together in later years uh he was just seemed to be a very rare person just whatever he put his mind to he did you know and i've never known too many people like that in my life pretty amazing do you guys have any idea so it sounds like he 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 very much compartmentalized parts of his life like the the punk rocker the the rodeo rider, the cop. Why would the record executive? The <laughs> so why do you think he separated this or siloed these parts of his life? Do you guys have any kind of ideas why you think he would want to keep those separate? Bruce, you know, if I had guess, you know, thinking back to Sunny Mead itself was kind of rednecky. So I think he kind of grew up thinking like you know uh rock people don't need to know i'm a cop cop need, cops don't need to know i'm gay you know these things don't need to intermingle and most people you're not gonna he probably was aware that there wasn't another gay policeman record exec uh rock star big in spain around so he just figured like i'll just be my army of one and wh whoever i deal with and whatever you know, avenue, that's that. And he just kind of kept it all separated, which uh, like I say, coming from that area, I don't, I don't, I, I kind of see the logic in it for sure. He wouldn't, I was openly out of the closet and Bill would even joke with me about it. You know, different boyfriends I had or whatever. Bill would never, ever come out to me. Ever. Yeah. Ever. And it's not like it was a big secret or anything, or anybody cared. It was he just- He would not, he would, he just- I don't know. I, I was on tour with him in Spain. He went to Spanish bathhouses and the whole band knew it, but he wouldn't, he just wouldn't say that's what he did. What did you do last night, Bill? We, we are all at the hotel where you at. And we knew, but like, who cares if that's what you want to do, man? We don't give a shit. It's your tour. I mean, enjoy yourself. I never knew that he was gay. I mean, I heard the rumors or whatever. I heard the rumor that he liked a leather bar, whatever it was. I never knew, it was, it was never confirmed to me until he died. That's how much well, he, he was like, you know, just. I, I mean, I got, I, I got the advanced newsletter when, uh, like, so I met him tail end of 78 by summer 79, I moved to Hollywood. So, uh, I had this apartment on Harper in West Hollywood and he got this subscription to a, a gay magazine called Honcho. Honcho. So he just had that sent to my house <laughs> and my soon to be wife comes in and goes, did you subscribe to a gay magazine? And I'm like, says Bill Bartell. No, no I think he actually put it in my name and then he would come <laughs> by and come up and then uh, my uh first wife would read them she loved the damn things and then so that became a no wait so that became a thing where he started doing the gas a tank of records thing and he 
again, the way his mind worked and coming from that area, he didn't want to have some sunny meat address on it. So I started, and I had this little, you know, apartment, you know, mailbox. I started receiving the Gasatanka, you know, mail which were, you know, so he had an ad and flip side or whatever it was and mail was coming in. And uh, then he would come out to my apartment once a week and pick up his mail and his, his honcho. So I don't know if they you know, right. but so that was obviously, you know, it, it was to me, I felt like he was really hiding it. But I mean, Bill, uh, Bill, uh, I was very openly gay. Um, Bill was funny, he was nice. I don't know if I, I always thought that Bill was a very handsome guy. Uh, if you look, there's a picture of us at, um, all sitting at the Jabberjaw, you put that up? Yes. Look at the picture of Bill. Look at, Bill was a very good looking guy. Huh? Uh, um, Bill had no sexual attraction to me at all. <laughs> he never came on to me, he never, you know, I was always insulted, you know, but, you know, when I found out later, but um, no, Bill never, ever, you know, whatever his type was, it wasn't me. But um, like I said, I never had that confirmed. He alluded to something about a friend that was ill. I don't know if he had a friend that had had AIDS or something. And uh, Bill was also very um, curious that I had stayed a devout Catholic where he had been brought up that and pretty much rejected all that. And was very curious the fact that I would still go to mass and things and, 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 and sometimes belittled me for it and things, you know, joke, joke in that. But when his friend got ill, he would ask me to pray. Could you, I have a friend, would you pray for my friend? And, and things like that. And I, I just kind of put it in my head, okay, there's something you know, he wouldn't go any into detail as to why I should pray for this friend, but just to pray for this friend. And so I just kind of in my head, okay, this this guy is ill, or he wants me to pray for a friend who is ill. But again, never would just come out and say it. He'd never come out and say it. So. It's very interesting because you were openly gay, and of, of yeah. all of his friends, you were probably the one that he could probably confide that to. And yeah, because, and he wouldn't. Well, it sounds like nobody judged him. Period. Right. Thankfully. Uh, even his straight friends, but it was, it's interesting that he, that that's the one thing that he didn't share with you. And that's one thing that we've learned is that he would, it seems like Bill would just share certain things with certain people mm-hmm. and then not. And there was no rhyme or reason. <laughs> yeah. It, like I said, it was compartmentalized. Like, you know, uh, for example, I was more of his hard rock friend. Uh, I was more of his guitar slinger friend. Those were the kind of things we tended to talk about or shows we went to or, that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's how he was. And we were, you know, we were all sort of in that kind of Red Cross camp. I, You know, Bill is the reason I got into 45 Grave. He introduced me to all those people. When I first moved here, uh, because I'd worked for that magazine, I ended up working for Music Connection and then it rolled into all those magazines you were mentioning. Uh, I would have never done that had that not happened. It wouldn't have occurred to me. But Anyway, so I could go to a lot of clubs and I'd see bands and Bill would call me, you got to go see this, you got to go see that. And so I was going to see all these bands he was recommending, which I almost universally thought were not good bands. And then one day he sent me to see the omelets and I was like, oh, these guys are great. Tell me about more bands like this. I love this. And he goes, okay, you got to go see this band 45 Grave. You're really going to like it. And 
you know, he knew I was a Sabbath fan and an Alice Cooper fan and all that kind of stuff. And that all kind of aligns there. And I like the germs. So that's sort of where all that meets. And I went to the show and happened to be the one show in their entire lifespan where Paul was joined by Pat Smear on guitar and it was mind blowing. And I, be, I was like, okay, this is my favorite band right now. And then the next time he came out to town, they were playing and he took me backstage and I met everybody. And then I did a magazine article on him and then finagled my way into the band when the time was right. But that would have never happened without Bill. And then, you know, just one of those things. Sounds like a lot of things happened because of right. Bill. He was uh, one of those dudes. Yeah, he connected people. Totally. He goes, yeah. you need to know this person. Do that a lot. We've, we've heard a lot of stories too about, you know, Bruce, you mentioned just the intensity sometimes of, of Bill. When he found something he was passionate about, he went full force. If he got an idea in his head, he went with it. But something else that people have said in the past is when we've had them on to talk about him is the intensity of his loyalty as a friend. You know, where people would say like, he'd call all the time, all the time. And it'd be like two hour conversations about music, about anything. And people would say, you know, you'd, you'd feel this kinship. And then all of a sudden, if you didn't hear from him from a while, for a while, you know, it would jar you out. Like what's happening with him? Where is he? And about, you know, that compartmentalizing of his life, you know, maybe that distancing, um, I don't know if some of that, if you think was maybe protection or whatever, but I think I want to go to the point of this loyalty business of constantly coming back to the people that he cared about and sharing part, but not all of his life. I mean, and as Jeff, when we talked about when he passed away, a lot of people were kind of uh, surprised by it simply because he had kind of removed himself or you know news wasn't being shared so i want to talk about his friendship with the both of you you know the intensity or the loyalty of it he was yeah he was very loyal he was very supportive he was very really just very loyal very supportive like like, like i said he like picked uh i wasn't you know i was kind of i had nothing going on really and he really just picked up my music and and gave it a new avenue, you know? He's like, no, you need to be doing this. You need to, he made it, he just made everything happen. You know, he was just a good guy. He was a good guy. And I, I'm just looking back at it all. And I think unbelievably that a guy that was that open and outgoing was, he was very insecure. I don't think he believed that he was very talented. And I thought he was, and I would tell him he was, but I don't, I don't think, in point. I think he he did not think he was a good musician. He just kind of wanted to latch on to people that he believed were great and somehow he could just be part of their thing when he was actually this incredible talent on his own, you know, and uh, it's, I thought it was, you know, like I said, I always thought he sold himself short on that. I think there is truth to that. Anyway, but yeah. Just an incredible. That's possible because you know, like you said, he would he would gather people around him to do whatever else he wanted to do, but he would always be the instigator, the organizer, you know, the guy that would put it together. I mean, just like the tour I did with him, uh, you know, he had put together a video with Dave Markey to to hype it, had the whole thing worked out, got a promoter over there. Uh, Javier from the Zeros 
and I played in the band because uh, the lead guitarist and the bass player he had at the time were in uh, Boogie Nights. And that was when Boogie Nights would do four gigs a week, you know, Chicago, Miami, Vegas, and LA. And they made like, I think they made like 10 grand a wow. week each guy. I mean, it was a pretty happening gig. I mean, they made a lot of money. I don't know if it was that much, but they, they, they were like, Bill, we can't go on this tour. So he got me and Javier to do it. But, and the whole thing was pretty laid out and figured out by Bill top to bottom. I wasn't really that familiar with the white flag, like song by song. And uh, yeah, I think that was just kind of typical, like anything I was involved with Bill, that, of which there were a lot of oddball things that along the way, uh, I, I was the publicist on the first, I put together the first like uh, industry party for the tater tots at a uh, club with no name down on Highland back in the eighties. And, you know, just things like, cause he knew I could do it. And then he brought in this whole crazy show and, you know, just things like that, that would, that would come up. I think the oddest thing I ever got involved with Bill on, he would sometimes go to come to me, just like the Red Cross guitar thing when he thought I could maybe pull off something some of his other friends might not have a angle on. So he calls me up one day and goes, can you play country and Western lead guitar? And I'm like, no, but yeah, I guess I can figure it out. I mean, wh why? And so do you know this story? No. I, I would think it would have come out. Okay. No. Bill got a big publishing deal with Warner Brothers. He got signed as a, as a songwriter wow. to Warner Brothers because uh, and the, I don't remember that. I wish I had more info. I could look it up for you, but you could probably find it online. There was a white flag song that this band in Sweden, who he described to me as the soul asylum of Sweden, covered, and it hit the charts. He had a hit in uh, Sweden. Wow. I hear a lot of charts been going. Well, who's this guy that wrote this song? This is great. Signed him to a deal. If you ever saw the fancy ass car he drove around the last 12 years of his life, that's how he got it. He got this big advance from Warner Brothers, ran right out and bought himself an expensive car. And then he was like, okay, now what do I do? I've got this deal. What do I do? And they go, well, write songs for us. He's like, okay, well, what do you need? Okay, so this is where it gets weird. Warner's. So he signed to Warner's in Europe, but he deals with Warner's in America. So here's the guy that has this big power pop hit in Europe, and they ask him to write country songs. <laughs> that makes no sense. And that's the music business for you. Why would anything make sense? So he's like, well, but Bill being Bill is like, well, fuck, I'll go for it. So he starts digging into country and Western and like, what do I like? What makes sense to me? And he lands on Brooks and Dunn because to him, that's the kiss of country music. They're coming on stage and they got steers and a big setup and it's a whole farm is on stage and it's a big show and one guy can't sing. So they run him through a bunch of gadgets and it's just the whole thing. And he, he takes to it. So he starts buying Brooks and Dunn shirts. He starts riding a fucking rodeo. I mean, he goes, he goes far deep into redneck stuff than anyone else in Sunny Mead I ever knew. 
And so he calls me up, let's do some country. I, you got anything? What? And we started writing songs together, which went nowhere. Uh, I was working for this company that uh, did some placements and stuff. I, I went to the country guy. I go, why is this stuff failing? To which he said, it sounds like rock guys dumbing down, wow. which I thought was, wow, wow. okay, I, you're probably 100% right. But I mean, he went into it and then he, he took me to a, we went to Seabrooks and Dunn at the, uh, I want to say it was Long Beach Arena. He got us on the list and it was a total Bill Bartell production. I mean, he had the whole outfit, the hat, the super expensive cowboy boots. And he wanted me, I go, I don't have those clothes, man. I, I can't look like that. And we got backstage. You'll love this. He said, he called somebody in, I think, I think Reba McIntyre was the actual headliner. It was a co-headliner with him. But he called Reba McIntyre's people and said, uh, yeah, I'm the uh, rep for Courtney Love, and she's really into Reba McIntyre all of a sudden, and we need passes for her, for me and Courtney. So they gave him passes. And then he shows up with me, and they're all like, where's Courtney? And I, and I didn't know the story at the time. I'm just sort of the dupe coming along. To, and he just wants me to be exposed to this whole world. And I'm just like, what have you done? You've lost your mind. But it, but that was Bill, like, okay, I'm country now. I got to, and he just went for it, like at a level I couldn't even imagine. Wow, this is crazy. I've never heard that story. Were you familiar? I with never that? knew that story. Wow. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I got a whole, like, I think he, he sent me a tape called Brooks and Duff, and like it was all of our demos. I would drive out to, he had a, a little, uh, I guess it was a 16 track ADAT studio in his house. And that's where we do everything, get it as close as we could get it to what we wanted. He was pretty, he had that, he had that stuff down pretty good. Brooks and Duff. That is so funny. That's hilarious. We, we did hear stories about how Bill could get backstage to any show somehow. And uh, that's interesting that he called as a representative for Courtney Love. I know that he kissed and Simmons and I, I remember a story where I was a big Kiss fan and he would talk to me about Kiss and I would tell him how that song from Hotter Than Hell Going Blind is such a great song. And I go, God, that's a perfect pop song, Bill. I wish they would do stuff like that. And then, I don't know, months later, Bill's like, oh, Michael, do you know that I told Simmons what you said about, uh, my, you know, I told you, I got Gene Simmons, I got them to do that on some European television shows. Yeah. What? So after I, they had gotten back when they had gotten back together for the Psycho cir Circus period, he got them to go on blind. You so know? did he say? And that was, you know, and he told me that you're the one that gave me the idea to go tell them to go do that. So I was like, wow, Bill, thanks. You know, that's great. Is that a link to why the Melvins covered going blind? Probably. See, that's so Bill. many connections. So just weaving through. Yeah. So we've heard uh, that Bill was a pretty big prankster. Do you guys, were you guys ever the victim or participants in any pranks that Bill uh, was playing? Pranksters were, okay. Jeff and Steve Donald were the king pranks. So I don't know if they had anything to do with Bill's, but Probably. they yeah. were they were the kings of calling people up and like making you believe they were did some it was some famous person you were they would punk they would punk people all the time. I don't know if Bill got it from them or So what about you, Bruce? Did you ever have Well one thing that kind of ties I wouldn't say it was a prank, but you're getting any kind of show. 
uh, like after I moved here, uh, I, I got a job working at the print shop that did all the Troubadour tickets because I knew that guy. And I just need to make money. So because I was at a print shop, Bill bought me this, uh, these, I don't know how he got the, somehow he got a thing that was the actual replica of the deal, but I was printing for him uh, forum passes. So like laminated forum passes. And, but the trick was that the forum would change the color all the time. So you, so you couldn't just like show up with your old forum pass and get in. So he had a rainbow of them from me and he went to every show backstage free through the forum club. Wow. Wow. So he just used the passes that you had printed up in, in a variety of yeah, colors? Yeah, it was his idea. Go, these will, these will totally get people into the forum club. And so I was like, all right. So I printed, I mean, I was usually, I could usually, because of magazine stuff, I could usually get on a list and I didn't really want to be busted with, you know, bootleg passes, but I, he never got caught. It always worked and he'd get whoever he needed backstage. So it was actually, I'm surprised more people didn't do it when I saw how easy it was, but that, that was another thing he thought of. But he had the, he had the guts to go through with it. It sounds like. Yeah. So. Can you? Oh, I wouldn't call it guts. It was just tenacity and like, you know, he would always just yeah. bullshit his way into anywhere. Good at that. That does take some tenacity to do that. And I would say a little bit of guts. Yes. So um, how did you guys end up finding out about Bill's passing? Was it through connections with Jeff and Steve or? I think I was on Facebook and it just started seeing these people saying R.I.P. Bill Bartell or something. And I think I made a phone call to somebody and, and you know. Bruce, I was actually at a recording session out in the Valley and uh, my friend, uh, well, through the uh, Tater Tots Association is known as Tuesday, but her real name is Morgan. Uh, she called me right away because she, she said, I, I don't want you to read about this online. Right, right. So that's how I heard about it. Wow. So um, the Bill's gone, but his legacy continues. So we uh, here we are still talking about it. We've learned recently that uh, there's probably a documentary or two in the works. So um, I yep. I did get some confirmation that somebody's working on that. I don't know if it's my place to share, so I won't. But um, it sounds like there's a documentary in the works, and um, I really appreciate you guys taking time to talk with us because we love learning more about this guy. He's such a mystery. And uh, he just seems like an amazing person. I'm sure he was a, a good friend to you guys. And uh, thank you so much for taking time and sharing stories with us. Thank you guys. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Take care. Thank nice you. meeting you, Bruce. Nice meeting you, Michael. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for sharing today. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye, Bruce. Thanks. Bye. All right. So, uh, so we got we learned a little bit more uh about bill i i love it just it's like peeling back one layer of onion and seeing a thousand more yeah but you know the, uh, michael and bruce definitely confirmed a, you know some other things you know from the music side but there are things as him as a person you know i like this i I like hearing about him looking out for people and looking for opportunities for people to plug in. 
you know, like how many times did he bring Bruce in, you know, by Bruce's own anecdotes, you know, but, or, you know, tell him about 45 Grave or, you know, bands that he was interested in. It, this is a really complex person. Yes. Yeah. So again, I'm reminded, especially from some things that Bruce was sharing, so many people, well, Michael too, um, and talking about permanent green light, so many people um, advanced in things in their lives as a result of knowing Bill, um, permanent green light with doing the tours. Bruce pretty much um, a lot of things happened for him, like in journalism. Well, that was right. starting to happen prior to that uh, in Moreno Valley or in Riverside County um, prior to that. But a lot of things seem to happen because of knowing Bill and Bill's passion and tenacity, using Bruce's word, um, as a result of Bill's life and Bill's passion. Um, it's just amazing that all these things we talk about Os Mutantes and just how they exploded in the U.S. Uh, we've, it's a bill. Yeah, because of bill. <laughs> right, you know. right. And I thought uh, Michael shared a great point about um, the fact that Bill um, maybe didn't understand how talented he really was. I thought that was an yeah. interesting point that we haven't discussed yet. Um, because obviously the guy was talented in, in many different ways as a right. performer, just as a promoter, um, all these different things and, and, and his passion and so many people were drawn to him. And uh, it, I thought that was an interesting thing. And then also new to me was the story, the um, what Bruce was sharing about the country and, and Western and him being a, a, a being brought up as a, a writer of country and Western songs. Signed to Warner, you know, Warner Europe based on a cover of a white flag song <laughs> done by what did, what did he call them? The, the band, they were the, the Sweden, the Swedish band. I think, um, I've, I think he might've performed with them. I've seen videos online I mean, trying to remember their name. Think about all those moving parts though right and then you know I, I think this is the part that I keep being I don't think surprised is by it's like there's a great Spanish word for it but not one in English um something that keeps coming back to me about Bill is it's like he had a magic wand like he could just make things happen and um never said no. It seems like he never said no to anything and was willing to try it. And if it piqued his interest enough, he like, you know, laser focused and did a lot with it. And then, but he also like jumped around a lot to different things, you know, okay, right here, now, now this, now that, now this, now that, now that. And, um, you know, creative, artistic, uh, definitely had a vision, but I think then, you know, you comp, you bring in what Michael said, where he never really understood or 
saw himself as talented as he was. And from what both Bruce and Michael and others have said, he definitely had the talent for it. Oh, yes. And he definitely showed it. So it's just interesting to me, you know, why so many parts of his life never truly connected. Except for, I think Bruce brought a really interesting point forward. His brother, Bill's brother, um, created one link, you know, one potential link, like the brother was a lawyer and law enforcement, there was a potential link, but it seems like maybe the brother could have been the one thread, but I don't know, but Bill wanted to keep parts of his life separate and, you know, reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where, where um, George says, my world's, George, my worlds are colliding and I'm not happy. You know, <laughs> it's like George, George's worlds need to be separate. And maybe that was it for Bill. It's like he just felt better when his rock life was rock life, his punk life was punk life, his country life was country life, his cop life was cop life, and so on. Yeah, and, and so on, and so on. Yeah, and it was interesting that Michael said that he was genuinely, that Bill was genuinely angry that these two worlds collided, right? When Michael approached uh, the police officer yeah. in the restaurant, and and Bill wasn't happy about that. Oh, by the way, the, the band is I, Sator, I think, S-A-T-O-R? I don't know how to pronounce with it. The O with the two. Yeah, yeah. You gotta help me with my Swedish. So oh uh, trust me, I, I can't. But now I'm gonna okay. Sator. See, I'm gonna do a little quick Google homework. Yeah. But um I'm glad that we took this time to have yet another episode focusing on Bill. Um it's more and more different angles that we learn with each person that we talk to. Um Michael's certainly shared some things that we haven't heard to this point and uh same with bruce and bruce going all the way back to 78 you know and and meeting bill so um, you know and think about it a magazine out you know out in what it, what what's it sunny mead yeah you know now marina small magazine that then just you know i want to write for it boom and I love that Bruce showed us a copy yes. of the last issue. Yes. The New Rocker. That was the name of the yeah, magazine. It, it looked like the New Yorker, but they changed to New Rocker. Perfect. And I mean, the typeface was identical. Yes. But um, I don't know. Bill Bartell is kind of like the magic man. Because uh, it seemed like there was no barrier that he didn't want to break through. Absolutely. And he broke through them. Oh yeah, no. Uh, to have a rainbow of forum club passes, <laughs> never paid for a show. Hats off. Yeah, that's baller work. Agreed. <laughs> but um, I mean, we've been really fortunate to have now three shows on Bill Bardell. Yeah, talk and I think we're you. still scratching the surface. Yeah, so I am really looking forward to this documentary. Um, so I spoke to somebody who's. Um, been who's had the project green lit so um again i don't think it's my place to share to share um who is working on this yet but it sounds like there is going to be a documentary um or two even dave markey had mentioned he was thinking of one too this is the, the person i talked to was somebody different um 
but um, it certainly seems like good documentary material. 100%. And um, Maybe I, we'll learn more. Yeah. Oh, I'm, sure, I'm certain that we will. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's unfortunate that we couldn't get somebody from the Beaumont Police Department. It looked for, uh, for a little bit like that was going to happen. I had a couple of contacts and talked to a few people. Uh, but in the end, um, it sounds like uh, nobody wanted to share with us other than what we already knew. So uh, that didn't help. But um, it has been verified that he was a police officer. And yeah. uh, hopefully when this documentary comes out that we will um, get to learn more about Bill because this has been a blast talking to the people that we've talked to. We got to know a little more about him as a musician. I'm really intrigued what these documentaries can uncover about him, the rodeo rider. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. The cop. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to go. So yeah. for now, I say gente agrubiar. Groove on, Paisley people. Thank you.